I was with you two weeks ago and began a subject entitled Salvation by Works. We do not believe that we earn our way to heaven by works. But neither do we believe that there can be any assurance of eternal life without good works. We do not believe the modern heresy that all you need to do is make a decision for Jesus, write down the date in the flyleaf of your Bible, and go live any way you wish, because you have guaranteed heaven for yourself, because once saved, always saved. We just reject all of that because we can't find it taught in the Bible. Amen. The decision upon which salvation rests is God's decision to save you, not your decision to be saved. The Bible teaches that God elected us in Christ Jesus before the world began, and He predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of His will. And we rest in His will for our eternal life. However, the only way that we can know that we are God's elect, predestinated to be His sons, with an eternal inheritance in heaven waiting, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to be baptized, and then to bear the fruit of a child of God. And so, I want to deal with this subject of works by taking you on a survey of the Bible to show you that the great multitude of those who have a few choice sound bites in the Bible are not dealing with the Bible honestly. And we want to deal with it honestly. I want to preach this before we enter Romans 6, because Romans 6, 7, and 8 deal with your duties. Romans 5 that we just finished in my expositional preaching set forth the sovereignty of God and our salvation so strongly that I want to take a break here to remind you that that singular obedience of Jesus Christ, that solitary obedience of Jesus Christ that makes us righteous in Romans chapter 5 is only for those with the evidence of eternal life. There's no other way you can claim Romans 5 having been done for you. And 6 is going to teach us that. And 7 will confirm it. And 8 will further confirm it. In the last 150 years, as I mentioned to you two weeks ago, a heresy has come to be accepted and believed and practiced by the vast majority of those that call themselves Christians. And I speak of conservative Christians. Liberal Christians don't give a rip. Church for them is only a social organization where you can go and network. You don't, many of you don't even know about those kind of churches. They don't care about the gospel and they never preach the gospel. They are preaching a social, social message of reform. They are preaching socialism. They are preaching that the purpose of religion is to help make the world literate, to rid the world of AIDS, etc., etc. That isn't the gospel at all. It's not even a second cousin to the gospel. Jesus, John, Paul, and the rest of the apostles never preached anything like that. I'm speaking of conservative churches where they're trying to get you saved. All that matters to them, according to their church mission statements, is not godly living, It's just, we need to get the world saved. And so the easier we can make it to get the world saved, the easier we'll be able to do our job of fulfilling the Great Commission. In the last 150 years, Charles Finney, a lawyer converted to Presbyterianism in New York State, invented the heresy of having people come down an aisle, sit on a mourner's bench, And by an act of their will, they could be saved. D.L. Moody, a Congregationalist out of New England, promoted the idea further. Billy Graham popularized it. When he would stand in a stadium made for athletics and call people down by the hundreds to get saved. Jack Hiles, a Baptist preacher out of Hammond, Indiana, 
who is now deceased as well as these others, I mean, except for Billy Graham, profaned the idea by taking it to ridiculous extremes. He would preach a sermon on heaven, never mentioning repentance and rejecting repentance as part of the salvation formula, and say, if you want to go to heaven and you'll come forward, you're saved. Now listen, if I went downtown Greenville, and I've said this to you before, and buttonholed people on the street and asked them if they wanted to go to heaven, who in the world doesn't want to go to heaven? That's not how you get to heaven. Heaven is a holy place for holy people. Right. Now, we have a problem because there's not a holy person in here, especially the one speaking. Almighty God makes us holy by sending His Son, His Holy Son. The devils themselves, when they worship Jesus Christ, said, Thou art the Holy One of God. He sent that Holy Son to die on the cross, bearing my sins, that I might bear His holiness. Then by the power of the Holy Spirit, at some point in my life, I was born again by the power of God, And He gave me a new heart, a new man, as the Bible describes it, created in righteousness and true holiness. So legally, I am holy in the sight of God by what Jesus did for me on the cross. Vitally, inside, I have a living principle, even a new man, that is holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus Christ comes again, and He's coming soon... He's going to take me, body, soul, and spirit, into heaven. Change my body so that it is holy, and I shall be holy. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy, H-O-L-Y, with the Lord forever. I'll be entirely holy with Him. Now, that is the gospel. That God has a people that He will save, just like He saved His nation Israel and left all others to worship pagan deities and waste their lives. He has a people. He's going to save every single one of them. Jesus declared very plainly, I will not lose a single one that God gave me to redeem. The gospel then brings that message of God's purpose in the human race as the potter with the clay to make vessels to honor and vessels to dishonor to this point. Repent! And believe the message that God has given about His Son, Jesus Christ. Those are the first steps of proving that you're a child of God. You don't become a child of God by your first initial response of faith, or repentance, or baptism. Those are only the evidences. Your eternal destiny, and you as a child of God, are based on God's choice. And the Bible declares that, and I said that enough times two weeks ago, but I don't want to repeat it today. I want to show you from the Bible that the emphasis in the Bible on the evidence of eternal life and the nature and the basis of salvation is godly character and conduct, not some little rote prayer that someone squeezed out of you in an emotional service or an emotional encounter. Why am I preaching this? You won't be able to keep track of these in order, but just hear me. And I wrote them to you yesterday, but I had, there's more. I want to provoke believers to labor to be accepted by their electing Father. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me, so that you can see that this was the desire of the Apostle Paul. We want to be like Paul. We do not care how many millions or how many billions believe a certain thing. We only want to believe the Bible. There are 1.1 billion Muslims. They're entirely insane religiously. I speak of the peace-loving ones, if there are such, equal to the yihad lovers. It makes no difference. Islam is a religion of the devil. 
just a few minutes research, just Google it. Just Google Islam. It is worship of the moon god of the Arabians. Period. The Arabians had hundreds of deities. They were polytheists. Mohammed, an illiterate traitor, met some Jews who were monotheists. That means they worshipped one god. He went home and picked out of the hundreds of deities of the Arabians their chief deity, the moon god. That is Islam. Spoken by an illiterate trader, written down by scribes, taking the moon god of the Arabians and making it the basis for a religion that now numbers 1.1 billion and affects our nation. Go look it up. Now, you shouldn't even have to look it up. Let me just remind you of a couple of things. Have you ever seen a mosque? What is at the top of every mosque? A crescent moon. Hello? What do you think that's there for? Their flags. Crescent moon. What was the shape of their swords by which they aided their evangelistic efforts? The scimitar. A crescent moon. Nevertheless. Why do I preach salvation by works? Because I want us to prove that we are the Lord's and to find acceptance with Him. Look at the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.9. Wherefore? Now the wherefore is there because the first eight verses are describing the resurrection from the dead and eternal life in heaven. Wherefore, we labor. Now that sounds like he's putting in some work. Wherefore, we labor. That, whether present or absent, whether we are here on earth still absent from the Lord, or whether we are in heaven present with Him, that we may be accepted of Him. The world wants to teach you that the important thing is for you to accept Jesus. The Bible does not teach that in a single verse. The Bible does teach in several places that the important matter is whether we're accepted of Him. When I get to heaven, it doesn't matter what I think of God. What matters is what does God think of me? And if God sees me as purchased by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, and having lived a righteous life out of devotion to that Son, I will be accepted of Him. Not on the merit of my works, but on the evidence of my works. I'm going to show it to you all day today, so get used to it. Look at the Apostle. Wherefore we labor. Now why in the world was he laboring if he had made a decision for Jesus on the road to Damascus. See, in Acts 9 and 22 and 26, the Apostle Paul gave his testimony. Everybody thinks that he got saved on the road to Damascus. Well, he did in a practical sense. He stopped following Moses' religion and started preaching Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of Moses' religion. But he had been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Jesus had died for him on the cross And he had been born again well before the road to Damascus because the Lord considered him to have been faithful before the road to Damascus. Go read it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He counted me faithful because to the light of his understanding and to the best of his ability, he worshipped God faithfully and zealously. Though he persecuted the followers of Jesus Christ because he didn't know better. As soon as he knew better... That he was converted on that point of truth. The purpose of preaching is to convert men. That doesn't mean to get their names written in heaven. God wrote their names in heaven before the world began. There's no no, no new name written down in glory. The purpose of preaching is to convert us so that we would conform our lives to be more like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the apostle. We labor. We work. That whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. Obviously, a decision for Jesus doesn't settle your acceptance of God. Paul continued to labor to be accepted of God. Do you see where I'm going today? I'm going to give you dozens and dozens of these verses if the clock holds out and I manage it just a little. That is our goal. 
I want to show you the weight of the Bible and how it emphasizes our good works. Why am I preaching this subject? To provoke believers to be like the Apostle Paul, that you will labor. That while you're here in this world, you want to be accepted of him by living a life that is well-pleasing in his sight. Another reason, I want to save you from the heresies of decisional regeneration and easy believism that are running rampant in our country in conservative churches. I want to help you follow the truth between the two ditches of the lordship controversy. I explained the lordship controversy. After Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, and Jack Hiles reduced salvation to making a decision for Jesus... The issue has popped up in the last 20 years. When I invite Jesus into my heart, do I have to invite him in as Lord? Or can I get away with just inviting him in as Savior? Those are the anti-Lordship people. They're very conservative Christians, as the world would describe them. They are headed by Dallas Theological Seminary. C.I. Schofield's Seminary. Over in one ditch. No. If a person has to invite Jesus in as Lord, if they have to repent, then they're adding works to the free grace of the offer of the gospel. And that is legalism, and those people will not be saved. Unbelievable. Then you come over to the other ditch, and John MacArthur out of California, and John Piper out of Minneapolis, and others have raised up their voices against that position by saying, no, there must be repentance along with faith, and you must invite Jesus in as Lord in order to be saved. That is easy believism over there in that ditch, and those people are going to hell because they have not humbled themselves before Jesus as Lord of their lives. That's why it's called the Lordship. Do you have to admit that Jesus is Lord in order to be saved? Dozens of books on the subject. It's a huge controversy. But if you watch ESPN, MTV, and CNN too much, you don't know about it. But I'm telling you about it. Why am I preaching on this subject? Because every good road that's designed by good civil engineers is curved, and we want the crown of the road. We don't want that ditch, and we don't want that ditch. We believe they're both wrong. There isn't any kind of a decision that saves people except the decision that God made for them. And the only evidence that we can know that God made that decision for us is to live a holy life, not by mouthing some prayer, whether Jesus is Savior or Jesus is Lord in the prayer. Are you with me? That's why I'm preaching on it. I want to condemn the soul of Fidei, the faith-only errors of both Calvinists and Arminians, because there's a whole lot more. The Bible plainly says that faith alone is worthless. I want to remind you that justification by faith and justification by works are both true. I want to contrast the cheap sound bites that are pulled from the Bible with its real statements. I want to provide a full description of the inspired evidence for the assurance of eternal life. I want to emphasize the character and works of the righteous that the Bible emphasizes. I want to correct any foolish notion in your heart That a child of God can live any way they wish and go to heaven when they die. I want to answer and defend against false accusations that we are antinomians. That is a theological term created hundreds of years ago, meaning without law. When people hear that we believe in election and predestination, the idiotic or the damned, Bible words, when I say damned, Romans 3, 7, and 8, say, if election is true, then I can live any way I want, because if I'm elect, I'm going to heaven, and if I'm not elect, it doesn't matter how I live. A person that says that is a scorner and proves that they're damned. Because that is such a convoluted, humanistic, anti-God, rebellious attitude about truth from the Bible. That is not true. The only way that we can know we're elect is to live a holy life. I want to correct The fact, and I want to defend against false accusations, that we are antinomians. There have been churches that believe in election and predestination and don't preach gospel duty. We're not like them. We reject them as heretical as fast as any other group. 
to stress the Bible's emphasis on good works as the remedy against God's chastening. To fulfill my ministerial charge as it's given in Titus chapter 3. I'm sorry for so long in this introduction, but look at Titus chapter 3. It's not too many pages to your right. Titus chapter 3, I want you to see this ministerial charge. I don't care what seminaries set as a mission statement for their graduates. And I don't care what churches have as their mission statement for their existence. I want the Word of God, especially the pastoral epistles, to guide my ministerial life. And Titus 3.8 says this, This is a faithful saying. This is better than their sayings. Their sayings are, let's win the lost at any cost. Here's God's statement for His ministers. This is a faithful saying, And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. What things? The things for aged men in verse 2. Aged women in verse 3. Young women of chapter 2. Excuse me. 2-2. Aged men, 2-3. Aged women. Verses 4 and 5, young women. Verse 6, young men. Ministers in verses 7 and 8. Servants, that's employees, in verses 9 and 10. Verse 1 subje- of chapter 3, subjection to civil authority, and so forth. Those are the things that are mentioned, and Paul tells Titus, these things are what I want you to affirm constantly, that those who claim to be believers would be careful to maintain good works, Not to have spurts of them, but to maintain them. That's my charge. I want to correct the wrong emphasis on the Great Commission by emphasizing the godliness that the New Testament epistles teach. The Bible says in Romans 10.13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, is that right? It is right when it's rightly divided and put in its proper place. And when we get to chapter 10, we will deal with it extensively. But until then, look at chapter 7 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. Because Jesus addresses those that call Him Lord. Now those who use Romans 10.13 as a soundbite for their evangelism, how could they not be lordship advocates? But they'll still use the soundbite And say they call upon Him as Lord, but they don't have to submit to Him as Lord. They don't have to give up their life to Him that way. They just invite Him as a Savior to save them. And so it goes. What a controversy. Semantics about words instead of grace that bears fruit. Matthew 7 and verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Not everyone that saith unto me, Jesus did not say, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but those that say it sincerely. Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth, The will of my Father which is in heaven. The real evidence of salvation is not calling upon the name of the Lord, but it's living a life worthy of the Lord. It's living a life in agreement with the Lord's teaching. This is the Word of God. This is Matthew 7.21. That has to be counterbalanced with Romans 10.13. Just saying the name Lord, just inviting Jesus into your heart, is not the evidence of eternal life. It's not the basis for it. Look at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Luke 6 and verse 46. 646. And why call ye me Lord? Lord! And do not the things which I say. 
Look at what Jesus has to say. He doesn't care if you call him Lord or not. He wants to know, why don't you do the things that he says? Instead of saying Jesus is Lord by a bumper sticker, do you do the things that Jesus taught? Why don't you do the things that I say? Why do you keep calling me Lord? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The Bible tells us that no man can say that Jesus is Lord sincerely except by the power of the Holy Ghost, which means the Holy Ghost is there first before you call him Lord in a sincere way. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3. This lordship controversy, in case you don't believe me, some of you may know these names, some of you may never have heard them before. Charles Ryrie, in a book entitled Balancing the Christian Life, wrote, I quote, The importance of this question cannot be overestimated in relation to both salvation and sanctification. The message of faith only and the message of faith plus commitment of life cannot both be the gospel. Therefore, one of them is false and comes under the curse of perverting the gospel or preaching another gospel. See, they think their little war of semantics is important. They're all worked up about how you word your little dinky, goofy sinner's prayer. We can't even find one in the entire Bible. Their main text for constructing its content is Revelation 3.20, inviting Jesus into their heart. I look in the right ditch, and I see a knight there, fully armored, and his horse covered with mail, and a jousting javelin in his hands. I look over here, and I see another one. A full coat of mail, a helmet, ready to joust. And they're both looking in the same direction, and well, lo and behold, there's a windmill. We have a Don Quixote over here in the anti-lordship camp, and a Don Quixote over here in the lordship camp. They're both wrong. Forget, I won't read any more of those, I have numbers. Let's go get a doctrine from heaven. Amen. A doctrine from heaven. I've already given you Psalm 15 this morning. And anyone listening to this by the Internet, I hope that you will go and listen to either our reading and explanation of Psalm 15 or that you will go read it carefully yourself. In Psalm 15, the question is asked, who is going to be in God's presence? Then the answer is given, and then it is stated, if you do these things, you shall never be moved. It's a wonderful psalm. Why don't they use this psalm for invitational text? Since it answers the question, what must I do to be saved? Why don't they use it? Instead, they say there's nothing you can do except to invite Jesus into your heart. But there is something you can do, and there's something you better do. And it's in Psalm 15. Why isn't Psalm 15 used on placards in end zones of football stadiums? Psalm 24 is the same, and you can read that one as well. But let's go to Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Mark chapter 1. Let's get the gospel of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us prove from the Bible that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ includes and requires repentance. The idea of just inviting Jesus into your heart, guaranteeing your salvation, is not taught in Scripture. If there is something taught in Scripture, the first act is repentance. Repentance is to reject a sinful way of living and to receive a godly way of living in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and the God of heaven. It is to reject the wrong lifestyle and to choose a different lifestyle. It is a total transformation of a person's life. It is repentance of the way I have thought the way I have spoken, the way I have lived, my past religious confidence, all of it is dung to follow Christ in every part of my life. That is repentance. 
And that is what it was always preached with the gospel. Not inviting Jesus into your heart. Nowhere is that found in the Bible. Right. Yes, I'm angry about that. I am so sick of so many pulpits preaching Revelation 3.20. It has nothing to do with sinners getting saved. It has everything to do with saints having more fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's, that's its context and that's its only intent. Repentance. No wonder we read in Acts chapter 19 that when those that practiced witchcraft and sorcery, when they heard the preaching of the gospel, they brought their books and burned them. And the value of the books was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now that is an evangelistic service. Because they took their books and burned them. Whatever is in your life that is contrary to the will of God, when you hear the gospel, you are to repent. That is the first evidence of a work of grace. That you will flush everything you've been doing that pleases your flesh, pleases, pleases your family, pleases your society, pleases your religion, in order to follow Jesus Christ. Now, is that the gospel? Or did they preach that all you need to do is believe on Jesus? Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Let's get verse 14 so that you see a little context. Now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. If we're going to be decisionless, and we're not, we would be lordship decisionless because repentance is put in front of believing the gospel. Repent ye and believe the gospel. This is what God's ministers have always brought. Listen, brethren, in the Garden of Eden, we made a choice. We chose sin and rebellion against the God of heaven, our Creator. The preachers of the gospel ever since have brought a message of repentance. What do you think Noah was preaching? Smile, God loves you, and has a wonderful plan for your life? Noah, a church of eight, inside the ark, while the rest of the world drowned. Were there smiley faces on his ark, saying, smile, God loves you? Hello? Why does people read the Bible and think? Mark 1.15, thank you, Lord, for giving us that verse so that we know what Jesus Christ preached. Right. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Believe the good message and the glad tidings, the good news that is conveyed by preaching God's word. Look at Luke 24. I'm sorry to turn you so many times today, but we've only just begun. Because I want to give you the overwhelming weight of the New Testament for you to see how partial they are in the Word of God. Luke 24 and verse 47, Jesus in His great commission said that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance is to be preached. The changing of your lifestyle your rejection of everything that is false, wrong, and condemned by God's Word to follow Jesus Christ in every part of your life. Repentance. A changing of your life. Look at Acts chapter 2. How did they put this into practice? What did the apostles do with that commission? We have the example of Jesus in Mark 1, the charge to, from Jesus to the apostles in Luke 24. Now what did they do? Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. Now when they heard this, what did they hear? Did they hear, if you want to go to heaven when you die, then you need to invite Jesus into your heart? Or did they hear this? That same Jesus that ye have crucified, God has raised up and put on the throne of heaven and made the earth his footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, he, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen. When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, this is Acts 2.37, Men and brethren, what shall we do? 
Then Peter said unto them, Invite Jesus into your heart and know that you are saved if you were to die this afternoon in a car accident. No, Peter said, Repent! And be baptized. That gets scary for Baptists. Either baptism is a condition or it's an evidence. If baptism is an evidence, then so is the repentance in front of it. Because you don't have a razor sharp enough to divide between the two in the Bible. Because Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you want to make it a condition, go ahead. We're going to make it an evidence. That's how we take the Bible. And I hope that you all understand that, those of you that are thinking closely, every man has to make a choice. That's how we'll understand the Bible. Because that fits perfectly well with everything we read. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Look at Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. 319. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. 531. 531. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be his prince and his savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Is repentance the condition, or is repentance the evidence? If it's the condition, I'm going to have you with a whole lot of conditions before the end of the day. We believe it's the evidence. We believe it is how we lay hold of eternal life. It is how we believe we grasp practical forgiveness of sins. Legal forgiveness was done on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. We believe that. For some reason, we believe that. 11.18, book of Acts. 11.18. Peter was called on the carpet for preaching to Gentiles in chapter 10, the household of Cornelius. The assembled apostles in Jerusalem, when they called him on the carpet, wanted to know what in the world he was doing with preaching to Gentiles. After he described what took place, they said this. Acts 11.18, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Notice the importance of repentance. And thankfully he did that because I believe we're all Gentiles here. Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul stood before the philosophers of Greece in Athens, Greece, he said, God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Acts chapter 20 and verse 21 Paul said this was a description of his ministry. Acts 20.21, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. There is repentance required as the first evidence of eternal life. And the first claim that we make of wanting to follow Christ is to repent. Right. 26. Acts 26, he's testifying to Agrippa and telling Agrippa the nature of his ministry. Acts 26 and verse 20, O King Agrippa, I showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works, meet for repentance. Do you understand how different we are? I want to tell you something. I am scared every day of my life studying the Bible and preaching the Bible. Only God knows and my wife a little. I tremble before every phrase and clause of this book. I do not want to misdivide it. I would rather be in the belly of a whale like Jonah than to preach an error. We are alone. There may be only a couple thousand churches left in the world, small churches like ours, that believe such things. Maybe less. 
But this is what the Bible says, and so we believe it. That's what they preached. Let me tell you, when the Apostle Paul got with Festus, he did not tell Festus, Hey, Festus, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Invite Jesus into your heart. He reasoned with Festus of righteousness, temperance, self-control was not known by Roman governors, and judgment to come. And what was the effect on poor Festus? Did he jump up and down with excitement that he could go to heaven when he died? Did he love the story from the wordless book? He trembled. And the preaching of God's word ought to cause men to tremble. Because we're all going to die. We're going to face the holy God of heaven who said, The foolish shall not stand in my sight, and I hate all workers of iniquity. My wife had a reprobate uncle die this past week who lived his entire life as a public reprobate. Despising God and the gospel. Living any way that he chose. Believing that there was just annihilation after life. Oh, would to God there was annihilation after life. If you're going to live wicked, you better hope there's annihilation after life. Because if you're going to live a wicked life, you're going to meet a holy God who hates all workers of iniquity. He is able to design torments that you cannot even comprehend or imagine in your wildest nightmares. Second Peter chapter 1. I know you've been there before. You were there two weeks ago because I took you there. And you should have been there last night when you read it. But I want to remind you, people write me and ask, how can I know I'm one of God's elect? That is a great question. God knew you would ask it. He answered it in the Bible. It's a question I want to ask. I want to have answered. How can I know I'm one of God's elect? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's the first step. Have you repented? Believe the gospel. Now remember, repentance means throwing away everything that was wrong in your life to take and follow Christ with everything good. Those are the first things we do to show that we're God's elect. To lay hold of the gospel and to lay hold of eternal life for ourselves. God's already guaranteed and promised eternal life to all of the elect. But how do we lay hold of it? That expression is used to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12. Don't you think Paul ordained a saved man? Or could Timothy still lay hold of eternal life? For the assurance of his own heart. Second Peter 1 in the first verse tells us that we obtain faith. If you ever have faith to believe the gospel and not to follow Islam or not to follow Pope Benedict XVI, but you have faith to believe the gospel, you obtained it because God gave it to you. In another place, James 2.5, God wrote that he hath chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. He's chosen to give faith to the poorer people of the world in order to bring to nothing those who think they are something because of houses, lands, or riches. But once a man is a believer, once he has faith given to him by God, then we get this exhortation, which I never want you to forget, which is why the repetition. When your children ask you, how can I know that I'm one of God's elect? Believe the gospel. Repent of your sins. Be baptized. And do these seven things. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence. Remember I emphasized, why does the Holy Spirit choose those words? Giving all diligence. This is not a light matter. Giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue. Don't you settle for faith. Don't you think that because you invited Jesus into your heart, you're going to heaven? The Apostle Peter would not let you rest there. (coughs) That is not the doctrine of Scripture. Add to your faith virtue. And add to your virtue knowledge. And to knowledge temperance. And to temperance patience. And to patience godliness. And to godliness brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound... 
They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. People will ask the question, do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? And they're content if you answer back, yes, I know the Lord. I invited Him into my heart 25 years ago in a Sunday school class. They're content. You can start talking about Michigan barely beating Indiana yesterday and poor Tennessee squandering a victory to Louisiana in the last second of the game. Okay? Then we can all be happy Christians. Hey, we'll grow the church. Get the praise band going. Do you know the Lord? The Bible says right here, if you know the Lord, it's going to cause something to be in your life. These eight things. If you don't have these things, prove your knowledge of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of Jesus Christ results in these things. Right. Verse 9, But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his own old sins. That is an elect child of God wasting his life. But you can never know that you're in that verse if you're not in verses 8 and 10. Verse 10, Wherefore, though rather, instead of that person in verse 9 that lacks these things, wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence. There's that word diligence again. Zealous exertion of effort. The way we all ought to work on the job. Give diligence. To make your calling and election sure. We can make our election sure. And the apostle is answering the question, how do I know if I'm one of God's elect? Live like the elect. Live like you're one of God's. Live like you're God's child. Make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Why do I harp and harp on this phrase? Because you have heard the other sound bites from the Bible emphasize so much to the exclusion of these. I'll preach them all. But I don't want you to ever forget this. How do I know I'm one of God's elect? Add something to your faith. Don't just say, well, I'm a believer. Show us you're you're a believer. Change your life. Repent of your sins. Choose virtue. That is goodness and nobility as measured by God. Show us your temperance. Your self-discipline is what temperance means. Show us your patience. Your cheerful enduring of negative events. Show us your godliness. Showing the character of God. Goodness, mercy, justice, integrity, honesty, truth. Verse 11, for so. Have you learned yet what the little adverb so means? For in the described way, or in the described manner, which is doing those eight things, an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I don't want to barely get into heaven. Because barely sounds too much like not getting in. Notice it doesn't say barely. It says an abundant entrance. This is the character of the righteous. This is a totally different gospel than what's taught out there. You've invited Jesus into your heart. Pat him on the back. You've invited Jesus into your heart. Why don't you write down the date in the flyleaf of your Bible? You can know that if you go out and get killed today, you're going to heaven. Because once saved, always saved. You are saved, brother. And don't let anyone tell you that if you don't keep all their commandments, you're not going to heaven. Because you've invited Jesus into your heart. Why didn't Peter... Preach anything like that. Why did he start with repentance in Acts 2.38 and then add these things to faith in 2 Peter chapter 1? I close with this one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The second place you want to go when someone asks you, how can I know I'm one of God's elect? How can I know that God is mine and I am His? How can I know my name is written in the book of life? Since I haven't seen it, how can I know it? 1 Thessalonians, a city in Greece. The Apostle Paul had preached there. 
men had repented and believed his gospel, were baptized, and then did these things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God, Paul speaking of himself and Timotheus and Silvanus. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Now, in Second Peter chapter 1, you made your election sure to yourself. In First Thessalonians chapter 1, these saints made their election sure to the Apostle Paul, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. What was it based on? The work of faith. Not just believing, but faith that results in activity and conduct. The work of faith. The labor of love. Not just saying, I love the brethren. I love the church. I love the saints. But laboring because of that love to do things for them. And the patience of hope. Hope so strong in heaven that it results in cheerfully enduring negative events. Now you don't have negative events in your life like they did. They were persecuted to death for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the two letters to the Thessalonians describes their persecutors. But there is the evidence. This is what the Bible teaches. It doesn't say, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing that when we preach to you, you all invited Jesus into your heart, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. It doesn't say anything like that, and nor does it say it anywhere else in the Bible. It says because of your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. People will sing the song, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It doesn't really matter if you say it. Show us your patience of hope. If you really have hope in heaven then the negative events of your life will not move you very far. Because it's patience of hope. You don't just love the brethren in word. You love the brethren in deed. And so it's called a labor of love. And you don't just believe. You believe to do great things for the Lord. Hebrews 11 is called the hall of faith because it lists great and noble characters from the Old Testament and their faith. But in every case it says, by faith... So-and-so did something. By faith, Noah built a big boat in his backyard. By faith, Abraham went into a country that he didn't know where he was going. And so forth. Brethren, listen. We profess to be the sons of God and the followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. If that is true, the Bible tells us how we ought to live. We profess to have eternal life. The Bible tells us what the real evidence of it is. We want to humble ourselves before God's Word and look into the nooks and crannies of our lives and throw out anything that is there in repentance even this day for living against the will of God. If you do these things, you shall never fall. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.